Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, we're going to read to the end of the chapter. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel. But they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel, for shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. In chapter 3, remember, Jeremiah uses four vivid pictures to illustrate Judah's spiritual condition. Judah is portrayed as an unfaithful wife in verses 1 through 10. The nation is pictured as an unhealthy patient in verses 21 through 25. An unplowed field in chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. An uncircumcised heart in chapter 4 verse 4. And in this section, the Lord is going to give a strong exhortation to repent. To return and repent And the strength of the exhortation was in direct proportion to the people of Israel's willingness to continue in their sin. And so as you read the book of Jeremiah, you might be asking, wait a minute, didn't he ask him to repent in chapter one? Uh, Yeah. Didn't he ask him to repent in chapter two? Uh, Yeah. And he's asking him to repent again in chapter three? Uh, Yeah. Why all of these messages about repentance? And remember, it's in direct proportion to their willingness to continue in sin. And you might be even wondering that about yourself. Why does the Bible constantly ask me to turn from my sin and turn to the Lord? Could it be that sometimes we struggle with this very issue? As a matter of fact, there's a faint whisper of repentance being heard. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah hears the people crying out to God for forgiveness and mercy. But God knows that their cries are shallow, superficial, as if the cries were expected. And so the picture that Jeremiah begins to paint is like a nagging parent or a nagging spouse who constantly asks the child to change or the spouse to change. Please, won't you stop doing this? Please, won't you stop doing this? Please, won't you stop doing this? Or the child or the spouse says, okay, okay, I'll stop. 
But it's really to make the parents shut up or the spouse shut up. They have no intention of actually stopping. I know you're probably thinking, well, why that's unheard of. (laughs) Things like that never happen, right? For some, God and conscience seem like a nag. Sometimes we say, I want the voice to stop. So I'm willing to say what the voice wants me to say in order for the voice to go away. But God knows that the agreement is superficial. The cries weren't coming from a broken and a contrite heart. And so in this passage, there is a call and a condition of repentance that's outlined. And what is the call and the condition for repentance? Number one, return to me. Number two, remove the abominations. Number three, swear by him that is the Lord in truth, justice, and the American way. No, that's not what it says. In righteousness. But whenever you see truth, justice, you just want to say the American way. But that's not what the text says. As a matter of fact, the text says something amazing in chapter 4. If Israel does these things, the nations will begin to bless the Lord themselves. Warren Wearsby, who I quote quite often, who's made a huge impact in my own life, has used the illustration over and over again of a frustrating person in a church who would come to the church meetings and pray a prayer something like this, and Lord, help me to clean out the cobwebs from my heart. And he would say it over and over and over again. And finally, in frustration, someone else said, And Lord, while you're cleaning out the cobwebs, kill the spider. And that's what Jeremiah is going to ask the children of Israel to do. Instead of constantly cleaning out the cobwebs. It's to make whatever's making the cobwebs go Away, And we begin with the broken heart of God. Look what the Lord says in verse 19. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. The Lord expresses his desire To treat the people of Israel, to treat the people of Judah. And let me make sure you understand when he's using those two terms. When he uses the term Israel, he might be making reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. Or he might be making reference to the totality of the community of faith, covenant Israel. And so when we think of Israel, we think of Israel and Judah together. But whatever he's talking about, he's talking about the covenant people. And he says, I want to treat you like family, like children. I want to bless you and I want to give you a wonderful inheritance. And the land here is the place of safety and the place of dwelling over and over again. In the Old Testament, the land becomes a type and a picture of that place that you're called to occupy as the place of promise. For the children of Israel in the Old Testament, that place was the land. 
For the people who are involved in the new covenant, that place is the person of Jesus. You aren't called to inherit a land, but rather something far greater than a land. It's a friendship and a fellowship with the Lord Jesus himself. And so occupying the promise, inheriting the wonderful blessings for the New Testament Christian is walking in the power and the presence and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the land is a picture of peace and safety. And of course, for the Christian, the place of peace and safety is in the person of Jesus. But if the children continue to sin, if they continue to rebel, they would lose the place of inheritance. And that's exactly what's already happened to the northern kingdom and what is historically about to take place for the southern kingdom. So over and over and over and time and time again, God called on the people to repent, always hoping the people would heed the warning and turn from their sins and turn back to him. The Lord deeply desired friendship and relationship, and it's marked by the use of that term father. This is the same term that Jesus will use in the New Testament. Remember when the disciples ask him, how should we pray? And Jesus says, look, when you pray, pray this way, say our father who art in heaven. It becomes a picture of relationship. And for some of you, perhaps. You grew up in a circumstance where your dad really wasn't there. And so even when you hear the word father, it means to you the person who was never there. But that's not normal. That's not normal. And again, I'm not suggesting for a moment that your life is not normal. But what I am suggesting is that in a real family relationship there is a father and that there is a mother and the mother provides care and nurture and a father provides a sense of stability and presence and so when the father invites you to cry out to him as the father he's not inviting you to cry out as a person who was never there but a person who's always there And it says in verse 20, surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Verse 21, a voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplication of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord, their God. I want you to understand something that he reiterates the adultery and the broken trust. Jeremiah hears weeping and supplication coming from the desolate heights. Now, you have to, again, remember the history of the passage that we're studying. And when when Jeremiah is giving this message, Josiah is the king. He's initiated the reforms. Josiah has taken down and broken down the high places. He's destroyed the gods and the goddesses. He smashed the altars. He's destroyed the, the, the places where the false idol worship could take place. And he hears the people weeping and crying in the heights. Are they crying? crying and weeping because the idols have been smashed and the false worship has gone away? Or is this the place where they're returning to the scene of the crime where they've disobeyed God? 
Is this the cries of people who are saying, look, what I've done is wrong and 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 I'm sorry for what I've done. But they have no intention of changing their heart. Perversion and forgetfulness are often linked together. Look what it says at the, in, in the middle of verse 21. For they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. By the way, that seems to be a principle. Perversion and forgetfulness are linked together. And by the way, either can come first. Either can lead to the other. Perversion leads to forgetfulness. Forgetfulness leads to perversion. If you begin to not to disbelieve God, but just simply forget about him. Just pretend like he's not there. Get up in the morning and don't have a quiet time. Open up your Bible, but have your mind be somewhere else. Come to church, but make sure that your head and that your heart are somewhere else. Fill your life with things that will distract you so that you don't have to think about God. And guess what? Pretty soon that distraction and forgetfulness will become perversion. What does the Bible mean when it talks about perversion? It means going in a way that is twisted, that is inconsistent with the word of God or the character of God. And by the way, Jeremiah typically places forgetfulness first over and over again throughout the book. He'll he'll usually put that first. Why have you forgotten God? Why have you forgotten God? So what is the truth? What was the reality of God's relationship with his people? The people, he uses the analogy, were like an unfaithful wife who turned away from her husband in verses 21 through Verses 20 and 21. Then Jeremiah preaches his message during, like I said, the sweeping reforms of Josiah. The altars are down. The high places have been cleansed. The worship centers of the false gods have been dismantled. The renovation of the temple is taking place. And But the people are still mentally and emotionally and some ways physically attached to their former wicked ways. You have to understand something that when Josiah brought about the sweeping reforms, they had been involved in a lifestyle of paying homage to the gods of fertility. And in those days and in that culture, the way that you paid homage to the gods of fertility was by having sex with the priests or the priestesses. That might sound really bizarre to you. But there are several Current religions that do exactly the same thing. Wicca is one of them. The, 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 the idea of witchcraft being a way that you express your devotion to your God of choice is by having sexual relations with multiple partners. And so in this sense, in a very real sense, the people were in the grips of a deep sexual addiction. And that might come as a shock and a surprise to you, because you might think that pornography is a modern sort of appearance or or occurrence. That that today's world, the world in which we live in, where children have instant access to pornography, where people have instant access, where, where innocence is gone, and whatever quote unquote secrets that were held between adults 
they're stripped away and people engage in inappropriate behavior from a very, very early age. Now, I want you to imagine a spouse who's caught in an adulterous relationship. And the spouse says, I'm breaking it off with him. I'm breaking it off with her. When they're faced with the possibility of a divorce, with the loss of income, with the destruction of the family unit. When all of a sudden the spouse begins to do the math and see all of the harm that it will cause. But then now imagine that the spouse keeps the picture of his or her lover in their wallet or purse. They keep the keys to their lover's apartment. They, they, they keep the place where the unfaithful rendezvous continue to take place. Does that sound like a person who's actually changed? Can you imagine being in that circumstance, your husband or your wife, they look you in the face and they say, I've broken it off with him or her um, and we're done. And they keep their picture in their wallet or purse and they keep the key to their apartment on them. What would you do? Would you say, look, I think you need to get rid of that picture and I think you need to get rid of that key. But the picture and the key is not really the problem, is it? What's the real problem? It's inside of their heart. There's something inside of them that wants to hold on to that illicit relationship. And that's what the Lord is pleading with Judah and Jerusalem. That I need you to be different. I need you to be to change. So what happened? Apparently, Josiah destroys the high places in the temples, but they still meet in deserted fields. They still have secret places that they continue to conduct their religious rituals. They continue to engage in the worship. They secretly pray to the fertility gods. They engage in the immoral practices. They wander away from God, and then they ignore him, and then they disobey his commandments. And look what it says in verse 22. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Now, once again, the Lord issues a strong appeal. Return, turn back to the Lord before it's too late. And you know what's the miracle? The miracle isn't that the Lord is asking them to return. The miracle is, what? Why would you even ask? Imagine you're counseling with someone. A man or a woman comes into your office or into your home, sits down and says, my spouse has been unfaithful to me for the last 30 years. And with how many partners? Mm, 150. And you go, you know, what's the magic number you're looking for? What's the magic number you're looking for where you will say, I think this is over with. I think we're through. I don't think I can continue this relationship any longer. Thank God that God doesn't look to us for counsel. Because the Lord, even after repeated rejections, repeated spiritual infidelities, says, return. Now, I, I want you to think about this, too. 
He doesn't begin with change everything and then return. He doesn't begin with if you'll throw away the key to her apartment, if you will burn her picture, if you will distance yourself from every vestige of reminding of the wicked relationship you were involved in, then we'll have a little discussion. Think about what the Lord is saying. Come, come back now. Return to me now. Well, what if I have her key in my wallet? And what if I have her picture in my wallet? And, and what if I, I still have some outstanding things left unattended? And the Lord says, come now. Return to me now. Come back to me now. Look at what he's saying. Healing is available for the backslider. And remember, remember, remember how we defined the backslider. Remember what this means according to Jeremiah. The backslider is the person who is mentally and emotionally, physically, emotionally distanced himself or herself. In other words, the backslider is the person who is made a mental departure, a physical departure, an emotional departure. It means that your mind and your heart really isn't there. There's just that subtle lack of affection that's there. But healing is available for the backslider. My emotional feelings are gone. I don't feel this way. And, and imagine that that might be your condition. I don't feel like being good. I don't feel like being a good Christian. I don't feel like doing what's right. I don't feel like honoring and obeying God. And the Lord says, look, look. Come to me. Return to me. And even though the feelings aren't exactly where you want the feelings to be, I will help you. I will heal you. Healing is available for the person who mentally, emotionally, physically have detached themselves from the Lord. Look what the Lord says. Return, return, and I will heal you. And now think about this. If you've fallen into some of those habits, if you have distanced yourself mentally or emotionally from the Lord... If you haven't made yourself available to the Lord, then ask and answer this question. What will it take for you to return? Again, the mystery is, why would God want you back? And the answer seems to be, I'm less concerned about what caused your departure and I'm more concerned about your return. And that's the focus. Hey, you know what? You can return once we can figure out why you left to begin with. But the Lord doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, let's figure out why you left. He says, forget about why whatever caused you to, to leave. Come back to me. Be with me. I'll take you back. One person translates this. Return, O oh children that turn away. I will heal your turnings away. I love that. And in verse 23, it says, Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Now think about what the text itself has said. In verse 22, return, 
And then at the end of verse 22, indeed, we do come to you for you are the Lord, our God. In other words, here's what it's like. It's like a statement and a response. Return. Okay, we'll come back to you. We'll come back to you. Because of who you are. And then in verse 23, truly in in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Here's the, the point. True salvation isn't from the hills. When it says truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills. The hills are the place where the abominations, where the infidelities, where the idolatry took place. So what is it saying? It's saying... Hey, I thought these religious substitutes would satisfy the longing of my heart and the longing of my soul and the longing of my mind. But will religious substitutes satisfy a personal or replace a real relationship with the Lord our God? Will religious substitutes make your sin go away? Will religious substitutes cleanse you and heal you and reconcile you to God and give you heaven? The answer is no, no, and again, no. True salvation rests in the Lord. That's what what it's saying. Religious substitutes are, let me just be blunt, a delusion. Not just simply an illusion, but a delusion. A delusion is the lies that we say to ourselves to make the pain go away, to satisfy the emptiness. Jeremiah contrasts false worship and the spiritual security and the blessed assurance that comes from knowing and following the true God. This is our only assurance. We sing it. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation. We have a blessed assurance. It's knowing and following the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jeremiah declares that the Lord, our God, is the salvation of Israel. And of course, the New Testament reiterates Jesus Christ is the Savior. Jesus Christ is the salvation of the world. And by the way, in verse 23, in the New King James, which I'm reading from, where it says, truly in vain is salvation hoped for. And then again, truly in the Lord our God. That word translated truly is the Hebrew word achen. It can be translated surely. And that's the way it's translated a little bit earlier. Remember in verse 20? Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband. Jeremiah is building to an apex. Israel has sinned. Idolatry is a delusion. Salvation is in God alone. Think about the conversation that's happening. Israel has sinned. Idolatry is a delusion. Salvation is found in God alone. Why would you want to go anywhere else? Why would you want to investigate anything else? And of course, the hills, like I said, are a reference to the former places of the idol worship and from the multitude. The word multitude is a difficult word to translate. It could be translated orgies or 
or orgies on uh, and uproars on the mountain. One rabbi interprets the word the multitude of idols. The idea in the text seems to be the moaning of personal pleasure that's taking place as the person says, I miss the old lifestyle of indulging myself, of satisfying myself, of wanting what I want. And in verse 24, it says, for shame is devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and herds, their sons and their daughters. Verse 24 has two possible meanings. Maybe it has more meanings. But the two possible meanings are Israel has been offering sacrifices to Baal, including human worship or human sacrifice, if you will. Or possibly Israel has suffered terrible misfortune as a result of the Baal worship. In either case, the verse means that the noisy orgies of Baal worship not only failed to help, but they were in fact harmful. So think about that in a modern application. Do do the drugs make you feel better for a moment? By the way, if you feel better for the moment, are you better? Maybe for the moment. But are there hidden consequences and hidden costs if you keep taking the drug, if you keep ingesting the drug and all of a sudden your liver starts to deteriorate, all of a sudden your mind starts to go blank, all of a sudden your arteries begin to harden? Is it possible as as you continue to ingest the drug slowly but surely the drug begins to kill you? So is the temporary pleasure worth the permanent pain or what about the person who's surfing the internet what about the person who's sexually involved in something that they have no business being involved in and all of a sudden there is a temporary release there's a temporary sense of euphoria there's this temporary sense of of pleasure but is that temporary sense of pleasure going to cost you something? Is a little piece of your soul going to be taken away? Is it really worth it? As a matter of fact, the expression for shame has devoured in the Hebrew language. It's Bosheth. It's a synonym for Baal. The idea is, is your preoccupation with these false deities Going to be worth it. And is it going to be worth it when your wife or your husband is gone? When your children no longer speak to you? When everything that you've worked for your entire life all of a sudden disappears? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to destroy everything and everyone that you've ever loved? And in verse 25 it says, We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth, even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Ooh, this is sounding a lot like a confession. Ooh, this is beginning to sound a lot like repentance. 
Now, again, remember, during the reign of Josiah, the people made a half-hearted effort to return to the Lord, but their confession was superficial, and it was temporary, and it was insincere. The person comes and says, okay, I'll stop. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop the drugs. I'll stop, stop the immoral relationships. I'll stop it. Well, glad to hear that. But they keep the key in the purse or the wallet. They keep the picture in the purse or the wallet. There's little telltale signs that something is wrong, that their heart hasn't changed. Outwardly, they profess the Lord, but inwardly in their heart of hearts and soul of souls, they're left unchanged. They're not willing to give up the carnal pleasure, the fleshly stimulation offered by the gods of lust. Look at what the people were willing to admit and confess in verse 23. Salvation is only of the Lord, not in false worship. It's not in their addiction or the false worship in idolatries and orgies. And people who are addicted to things are willing to admit, hey, look, I know that God is God and I know that Jesus is Jesus. And I know that my addiction can't save me. Then why do you continue to drink? Why do you continue to drug? Why do you continue to resist and to rebel? The people were willing to admit that salvation is only in the Lord. They admitted the idolatry. They admitted the rebellion. They admitted the disobedience. They admitted that it cost them dearly in the past. They weren't simply mental and emotional consequences. There was a financial drain. When you read the text, their flocks and their herds, what he's talking about is the source of their wealth. In other words, worshiping these idols, rebelling against God, cost them. There was a financial drain. In the past, God allowed their neighboring tribes and kingdoms to plunder the people of Israel and the surrounded nations to take their wealth and their property, all because of the people's sins. By the way, do addictions cost you? There might be a hidden cost, but then there's sometimes an overt cost. Where everything you work for. Everything that you've saved for is gone. You know, one of the most terrifying things about the false prophecy. Now, let me just be clear here. I hope and pray the Lord comes this Saturday. I hope that Harold Camping is right. I'm, I'm hoping that Harold Camping is wrong, that today is the day. Today. Today is the day that Jesus comes back and redeems us. But for the person who's followed... This false prophet. And Saturday comes and goes. For the person who's followed the false prophet and they sold 
everything that they had. They take $100,000 or $270,000 or $400,000. They take their life savings. They take out full-page ads in USA Today. They take out the billboards and the signs, May 21st, May 21st, May 21st. They sell everything that they have, everything that they've worked for, everything that they've hoped for, everything that they've used to try to provide for their family into the future. And on Sunday morning, they wake up and they're still here and everything that they worked for is Are they any more foolish than the person who works and works and works only to wake up and their husband is gone, their wife is gone, their children are gone, their ministry is gone, everything that they worked for, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. Think about that for just a moment. The people admitted and confessed their sin. They admitted and confessed their failure to obey God's word. They admitted and confessed that they have broken God's commandments in verse 25. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And I know what some of you are thinking. We're off to a good start, right? Look what they're doing. They're admitting that there's no way to be saved other than Jesus. Look what they're admitting, that it's cost them dearly. Look what they're admitting, that they failed to listen to God. They failed to pay attention. This is good, right? What if I told you that confession and admission without a change of heart is not what God is looking for. I think confession and admission is a good start. But if confession and admission does not result in a deep change of heart, then something's terribly wrong and something's terribly missing. On the outside, it looked like the people were overwhelmed with guilt and overwhelmed with shame. They were sincere in confessing their sins, but it was all an outward show. It wasn't true repentance from the depths of their heart. And this causes me to need, I need to remind you of something. There are two things. Things that we can know and things that we cannot know. I'm going to suggest even a third category. There are things that we don't know right now that we might know in the future, possibly, given enough information. So back to square one, things that we know and things that we don't know. Can we know what's going on in, in the deepest recesses of anyone's heart? The answer is no. The answer is no. We cannot know what's going on inside of a person's heart. So when we wonder, is this person overwhelmed with guilt and shame? Are they sincere in confessing their sins? Is it an outward show? Or is it a half-hearted enterprise where the person is holding on to the key to the apartment and the picture of their lover and they're not ready to give it up and they've hidden it from you. And so all you see is what they say. And all you see is what they do. 
And so for the person who says, I've changed. I'm different. But they do exactly what they used to do. What can we determine from the person who says, I have changed, but nothing has changed in their thinking and nothing has changed in their heart and nothing has changed in their behavior? Here's what the Lord is saying. If the people are truly sincere, then God's hand of judgment won't fall and the nation will be spared. Unfortunately, we historically know the truth. The hand of judgment came and the children are going to be taken into judgment. What does that tell you about their behavior change? Why did God judge them? Because they sincerely repented with all of their heart? Or because they insincerely repented? Because of the hollow, because of the shallow, because of the insincere repentance... The Lord's going to spell out just what genuine repentance looks like. Wouldn't you like to know that? Okay, Lord, what does it really look like? Chapter 4, verse 1. You guys are going, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. There's something else. If you, look, here's, here's what it genuinely looks like. If you will return. That, that's where it begins. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved and you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your follow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire. And burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Look again in verse 1. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, by the way, can God see if you've hidden the key in your purse or wallet? Can God see if you have a secret stash, a secret place where you hide things, where you don't want your husband or your wife or your parents to know? Do they know the secret places where you stash the things that you want to hold on to? And if you put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. The Lord announces the conditions. One, return to me. Two, Remove the abominations. Do I have to ask you what the abominations are? Do you get it? The abominations, remember, are those things which the Lord found utterly detestable. The context in this particular passage is the idolatry and the false worship of false gods of surrendering the truth about the covenant relationship that, that the children of Judah and Jerusalem were supposed to have with the true and the living God. So to make a long story short, an abomination is anything that the Lord finds detestable reprehensible, wicked, not right. And three, the Lord promises steadfastness. 
And I'm going to suggest something. There's an element of steadfastness on the part of the person who repents. So the immediate context of the passage is return to God, remove the abominations, and you get to stay in the land. That's what I think it means. You will not be moved, literally. But I think that there's a spiritual application for all of us who are willing to repent. If we are willing to repent, if we'll return to God, if we'll remove the abominations... God will create within each and every heart a sense of perseverance and unwavering. Have you ever wanted to change so bad and you were so upset because you thought, if I wake up tomorrow morning, God knows, God knows, God knows that I want to stop drinking, I want to stop drugging, I want to stop doing this, I want to stop doing that, I want to stop doing this, and I want to stop doing that, and I know I'm going to wake up in the morning and I know I'm going to do it again. But the Lord says, I'm not waiting for you to stop. What I'm waiting for you to do is to return to me. It doesn't begin with stopping the bad behavior. It starts with trusting the Lord himself. Good news, bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Bad news, you can't change yourself. The good news, God can. He can if you'll let him. The Lord came so that you could have life and have it more abundantly. What if I fall back on the same old filthy habits? The verb shove. Return. It can mean to turn from or it can mean to turn to something. Here when it says return, the emphasis in the original language is To me. Don't just change your mind. Don't just change your circumstance. Don't just change your attitude. Whatever it is you're changing, I want you to put all of that stuff in the past. And I want you to come to me and believe in me and trust me and rely on me. And the me isn't Gino. The me is the God of the Bible. The me is the person who's calling out throughout the ages who says, I'm the Lord God. Come to me. And guess what? You'll find a satisfying solution to the problem that you're facing. That's what it means. A direction away from the Lord can't be the right direction. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? When the Lord says, return to me, and all of a sudden you find yourself going in exactly the opposite direction, doesn't it make you want to go, you're going the wrong way? (laughs) Turn around. Turn around and go in the right direction. A direction away from the Lord Jesus Christ can't be the right direction. And so I want you to think about it. If there's any voice, if there's any person, if there's anyone, if there's anything that's saying, turn away from Jesus. Don't trust Jesus. Close your Bible. Forget about what the Bible has to say about Jesus. That means you're going in the wrong direction. And again, the immediate context Indicates that the abominations are the things associated with the Baal worship, with the sexual misconduct of the people. But Jeremiah's emphasis isn't simply in what they do, but in who they are. On the inside. And don't waver. Then you shall not be moved. 
don't waver. Then you shall not be moved. If you truly repent, you won't be exiled. I'm going to suggest to you that the context for us as Christians, for the people who are reading the Bible, the context is return to me, remove the abominations out of my sight. And then you won't be moved. Guess what? I'll create within you a heart that is steadfast and true. I'll place within you a desire that you're not going to want to wake up in the morning and have that drug of choice, whatever it might be. Where you wake up the following morning and you go, I still want Jesus. I still want his love. I still want his forgiveness. I still want his grace. I still want his mercy. That's what I want. Don't waver. You say, look, all of these things promise me temporary relief, but they're lies and they're not the truth. But the attractions are too strong. The temptations are too great. The, the pleasures are too enjoyable. Really? Really? Even if it means it's going to kill you. Even if it means your husband or your wife is going to leave you. Even if it means that your children will never speak to you again. Because apparently displeasing and dishonoring the God doesn't provide sufficient motivation for you to change. And I got to tell you something. If displeasing and dishonoring the Lord doesn't provide sufficient motivation to change. Then when your wife says, I'm leaving you, when your husband says, I'm leaving you, when your children say, I'm ashamed of you, when people don't trust you, when no one will listen to you, you'll just simply say, I don't care. I have what I want. And I'll keep with what I want. But look what it says in verse 2. And you shall swear. The Lord lives. In truth, in judgment, in righteousness, the nation shall bless themselves in him. And in him they shall glory. Now we see the dedication of the lips and the life. If Israel fulfills the condition, God promises that even the nations around them will be Transform. It would appear that the Lord has no problem making promises and entering into oaths and vows based on false deities. In other words, Israel had no problem. Israel would say, I swear by Baal. I swear by Azeroth. I swear by this deity or that deity. Remember when you're a kid growing up and you're listening to Superman and he goes, by Jupiter. And it's the Roman God. By Jove. Those are Roman deities. Even in our own culture, people, in order to try and impress you with their sincerity, will look you straight in the eye and say, I swear to God. There's a few things more terrifying in my life than when someone looks me right in the eyes and they say, I swear to God. And then I remember Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear the Lord your God. And serve him. And shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after gods, the gods of peoples who are all around you. In other words, when a person enters into an oath, when they swear to God, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think God takes that seriously? Yeah. You may not take it seriously, but God does. 
you may think, he understands, he understands that I'm human, he understands that I make mistakes. No. He understands that the moment you swear, look what it says in verse 2, and you shall swear the Lord lives. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about a change that is so profound that it results not just in a change superficially, in truth, in justice, in in uprightness. Jeremiah calls not just simple dedication of the lips, but a dedicated life. That's what he's, he's calling on. He's saying, look, I don't want you just to dedicate with your mouth. I want you to dedicate with your heart and with your life. And then the, the surprising conclusion is that even the nations will be blessed. Here's the idea. If you fulfill the extremely difficult conditions that God lays out for your repentance, then everyone will be blessed. Does that shock you? That if you actually turn to the Lord, turn away from the abominations, seek the Lord, not just with your lips, but with your life. Your children will be different and your husband will be different and your wife will be different and your neighbors will be different. Your pastor will be different. Everyone will be different. Your life matters and what you do has consequences. And in verse three, it says, for thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your follow grant and do not sow among the thorns. The Lord commands the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem to break up the follow ground. You know what that is. The follow ground is the hard ground. It's the uncultivated ground. Follow is untilled, uncultivated. There were times in the ancient world where people would purposely leave the ground alone. They would let it rest. And that's appropriate. It's sometimes appropriate to leave a piece of land alone in order to let it rest. But there comes a time when the land becomes choked out with weeds. Repentance must never be superficial. You have to plow deeply. And that's what he's saying. He's saying to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your follow. Well, I have a hard heart. Well, then break it up. My husband's heart won't change. My wife's heart won't change. My children's heart won't change. Then break it up. What will break up a hard heart? I'll tell you what will break up hard soil. Lots of rain. Lots of water, lots of rain. Now, on the surface of a, of a hard surface, it could just make for mud and a disaster. But in the Bible, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are like water. Stop talking to me about the Bible. Stop quoting those verses. Stop. Okay, then I'll pray for you. You stop praying for me. Don't pray for me and don't talk to me about the Bible. My advice, pray for them and talk to them about the Bible. Because if you don't pray for them and if you don't quote the scriptures, their heart remains even harder. But when you pray for them and when you share God's word with them, something begins to soften. Something begins to soften. 
And then verse 4, it says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. The people would have been familiar with that practice of circumcision. Physical circumcision was a rite that represented the covenant relationship of the children of Abraham with God. And it could very well be that when when Jeremiah is using that statement, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, the people of Jerusalem and Judah were thinking, we have the temple. We're the children of Abraham. We're followers of Moses. We're religious people. I go to the right church. I carry the right Bible. I do religious things. I'm religious. I'm fine. Leave me alone. I've been baptized. I've been confirmed. I've, I've done religious things. Leave me alone. But is God looking for religious things? Or is God looking for repentance and relationship? Is God looking for a change of heart? You see, the Bible teaches that no physical action on the part of people can recommend people to God. In order for a person to be made acceptable to God, it requires a change of heart. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, there's a reference to the circumcised heart in Deuteronomy 10.16, in Ezekiel 11.19, Romans 2.25. Take Colossians 2.11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here's what Paul says. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, all of the religion was cut away, stripped away. Religious things are made bare. Because you're in Christ by the circumcision of Christ. It's not the temple. It's not the observation of the, the feast. It's not religious behavior. It's deep repentance and a willingness to honor the Lord. And then Jeremiah uses the image of fire to describe God's wrath. But even in God's wrath, there's a redemptive element. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah 23, verse 29, and also in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, Jeremiah will write concerning the Lord, Is not my word like fire? So, what is he asking? Verse 1. People turn away from idols and idol worship. Verse 2. Second, people must no longer stray from God. Verse 2. The people must live and swear by God's name alone. That means they uphold all that the name implies. Truth, justice, holiness, righteousness, obeying God's command and the promises given. You won't be moved. They'll, it'll provide a strong testimony to a watching world. There's significant contributions that could be made. The moment you say... No to sin. And you say, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to honor God. And I'm going to follow Jesus. Not only because it's the right thing to do, and not only because it honors God, but guess what? Your husband and your wife, your children, your neighbors, 
the whole world will be different. That's the point. And then fourth, the people have to break up the hard, unplowed ground from their hearts. And verse three, we can't harden our hearts against the Lord. It must not be so hard that only thorns and thistles grow. And fifth, you people have to circumcise their heart by cutting out all sin from their lives. A radical change. Those who truly repent must make righteousness and not sin the dominant characteristic of your life. Your life can't be defined by your struggle, your addiction, your weakness. Your life is defined in Christ. Your life is defined by His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. That's who you are. That's what you were always intended to be. In Psalm 51, 17, it says the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. In Isaiah 55, 7, it says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. Do you have to wait to change? No. Return now. Remove the abominations. But returning comes first. Removing comes second. And guess what? The Lord is there. To make you unwavering. To make you persevere. So that your love and your grace and your mercy becomes the thing that marks your life. It becomes the very defining characteristic of your life. Follower. Lover. Of Jesus. Hey, that's only the first four verses of the fourth chapter. There's way more. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you as we make our way through this difficult passage. But Lord, we know that the call and conditions of re- for repentance haven't changed. That we can return to you. That Lord, we can remove the things that are dishonoring and displeasing to you. And that we can remind ourselves That over and over again, you've given us the promise. I love you. I'll pardon you. I'll take you. I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse you. I'll wash you. I'll strengthen you. I'll I'll give you the promises necessary in order for you to change. Lord, we know that we can change our mind, but we can't change our heart. Lord, we entrust that That job to you, Lord. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's wavering and living a life of duplicity and detachment. Lord, I pray that you would knock on the door of their heart. Lord, I pray that they would say, that's what I want. I want to return to the Lord. I want to forsake the things that are making life miserable. And I want to trust the Lord and I want to believe that he'll change my life.
And if that's you, just cry out to him now. Pray to him now. He knows the truth of your heart. He knows what, what's going on inside of you. I don't, but God does. Trust him now. Trust him to identify those areas of, of rebellion and disobedience. Trust him to fill your life with the strength and the courage to love him and follow him today. In Jesus' name, amen.